Welcome to um, the second of the uh, lectures, public lectures, um, of the LSE and the Confucius Institute for Business London. Um, before I introduce our speaker, I'll introduce myself. I'm Nick Byrne. I have three titles. I'm Acting Director of the Confucius Institute for Business London, Head of the LSE Language Centre, and also Head of Academic and Professional Development at LSE, which takes in uh, careers and the Teaching and Learning Centre. So lots of titles and just one person. Now, um, I have to my left Professor Danny Quar. Um, professor of Economics at the London School of uh, Economics um, and one of A, the best people in the school B, one of the best people in the world, if not C, the universe and actually one of the most prominent experts in the field of economics um, I Wikipedia'd him for the first time <laughs> And I was having a very, very intelligent conversation with him in the green room, Hensel Delay, on vector autoregression, which probably means an awful lot to you, but nothing to me. And it was very, very interesting, saying, well, actually, that's what I'm not best known for. It is actually the work of Twin Peaks, or work of Twin Peaks, I'm not so sure. But what we have, if you do Wikipedia, and if you do Google, and indeed go to his webpage, um, and LSE experts, is somebody who you know is right on top of things, is searching deeper and deeper into the things that matter, and is totally current and of the moment. Um, so we're very lucky that Danny has made time out of a very busy schedule to address us about a topic that is fascinating. A, China, B, its economy, and see how it is coping in a global recession. I know very much that we had a very interesting talk from you, Danny, last year about the new industries um, and how they were growing in China as well. And so this is a very, very interesting um, catch-all and very much a snapshot of what is happening now, 2009, 2010. So I hope that was what you wanted to hear about yourself because there's nothing more to come. Enough praise, enough time. Uh, can I have a warm welcome applause for Danny Quar and his talk? Thank you, Nick. Um, th thank you indeed for the nice things you say. I I'm never quite sure what you might say about me, so it's always with trepidation. Um, but thank you very much, and... Um, Welcome this e to this evening's Confucius Institute lecture. I, have, I will be talking about China and the global economic crisis in general, but there are some specific questions I would like us to drill down on. And I'm going to state these specific questions in perhaps slightly more provocative, more direct ways than most nuanced discussions out there. I have taken them on simply to sharpen our thinking, simply to sharpen the debate here. There are some nuggets of conventional wisdom out there, and it's uh, on, on having to do with China and the global economy, and these have become forefront, these have become uh, current in the sense that there is considerable discussion about what we do with rebalancing the global economy, rejigging the international financial system, exchange rate policy between China and the United States and other countries. And all of this 
the interesting and deep economic issues underlying all of this discussion. So to state some of these issues, China has been accused of, among other things, of having caused the 2008 global financial crisis. It, together with some other countries, mostly the Asian economies, through their thrift and through their um, high savings rate, brought about over the 1990s and early 2000s a global savings glut. This global savings glut provided cheap capital that fueled a feeding frenzy in the investment banking community in the West. And although investment bankers might have thought to be innovative, might have come up with collateralized debt obligations and other financial innovations that would have built a trillion-dollar infrastructure on their own, in one reading of this recent economic history, it was Asia, and China in particular, that provided the fuel that provided the cheap capital through a global savings glut that allowed this um, this feeding frenzy in financial markets to occur and whose unwinding brought about the 2008 credit crunch. So there's at least one reading of economic history and one theme underlying modern international economic policy discussions that places part of the blame for the 2008 financial crisis squarely on China. But in this reasoning, all is not lost because the countries that were saving a lot, like China, countries that were running trade surpluses, are actually, in this reasoning, going to suffer worse than everybody else in the current global financial crisis. And in having this happen to them, they're only getting what they deserve. If, after all, they fueled the cheap capital that brought about the financial crisis, it is par for the course that in the unwinding of the financial infrastructure and in the spillover into the real economy, it is these surplus countries that will in turn suffer the worst for this. And there is a reasoning that underlies this, a reasoning that I want to take us through and then unpack. A third theme that underlies a lot of international policy discussion is that even if all comes out well in the, out of this current economic crisis, China cannot replace the U.S. consumer and world demand. For the world economy to be restored back on track on a track that goes back for the last 50 years, the U.S. consumer has to be reinstated as central in the global economy. And indeed, China itself relies on the U.S. economy for its own, the U.S. consumer for its own growth. So in this unwinding of the financial infrastructure, in this spillover that impacts the surplus countries, those to blame for the financial crisis in the first place, we need to restore a balance that goes back to the way the situation was previously, that the U.S. consumer would continue to be the engine of economic growth. Now, in this reasoning and in policy discussions that you've seen swirling about both in the blogosphere and in print and in, and in much discussion in the last few days, in this reasoning, the world would be set to rights once again if only the renminbi would appreciate. If only China would allow its currency to rise properly against the rest of the world. 
Now, I've gone through this little bit of a, a tour of conventional wisdom, stated, as I've suggested, a little bit more provocatively, a little bit more directly than most appropriate nuanced discussions would occur, because we want to sharpen the discussion. We want to get to the point right away and not mess around. So I want to suggest that in the midst of all of this financial crisis, nonetheless, the New York Times this last summer saw fit to print how American graduates were finding difficulties in a, in, a, in a U.S. job market that was not able to generate enough jobs. We're actually going to China to find jobs. And many of these Americans who've gone there, they've tried to make a go of being a success in China, actually have gone there without much Chinese language training. So if only they had had access to the Confucius Institute <laughs> before they did this, all would then be right. Okay. My own take on this and the evidence that I want to present to you that addresses these conventional wisdoms and this problem you know, can be posed in terms of the answers to a number of questions. And these are, I want, to, I want us to consider that we need to look at unconventional answers to these questions. Okay. Part and parcel of the scenario that I've laid out for you is a view that the Asian growth model the one that China has been following most notably, but that others like Singapore, Hong Kong, Taiwan, South Korea, and before them, Japan had pioneered. It's a growth model that's driven by exports and by high savings, and that in this conventional wisdom, that growth model is broken. And the current financial crisis is illustrating that, and we need to go back and rethink that growth model. I want to suggest to you that the answer to this is actually no, that the Asian growth model, insofar as you can think of it as an Asian growth model rather than simply a bunch of equations that make sense, is actually a model that potentially remains useful. I want to suggest to you that this views about how Chinese consumption needs to be boosted artificially or inorg inorganically are misplaced that the momentum is already in place for Chinese consumption to rise, and it will rise as part and parcel of an, a reasonable and natural adjustment along the lines that the Chinese economy has already set for itself. And it does not, while it might need to be helped along, it does not need to be changed considerably the way that the international policy community needs to suggest did China cause the global financial crisis? I want to present to you evidence that says no. That in fact, if we are to pin that in fact the global financial crisis in terms of these global flows of capital is a much more multifaceted, multidimensional, and multi-blamed animal. But if you did have to point your finger at one economy, that economy is not China. Which economy that is, or who, which part of the world that turns out to be, well, we'll get to when we look at the facts. I want to argue that the renminbi U.S. dollar exchange rate adjustment issue is indeed a red herring, that if we simply allow that exchange rate to change in the way that many international observers are suggesting, it would alter practically nothing in the pattern of global imbalances that we observe today. So the final part of this unconventional wisdom is that will Chinese growth continue? Well, the answer to that is the same as the answer to that same question applied to any other successful growing economy and that it depends. But the factors that allow chi the Chinese growth miracle to continue are, have not been pulled away and that there is considerable probability that the Chinese growth, more, the Chinese growth will continue. Okay, so let me take this in turn. 
what are these fears that I've referred to that, that about the global economy at the beginning of the global financial crisis and why did people, why did reasonable observers think that it was the surplus countries, the countries that were initially the savers, the countries that were not at the center of the financial maelstrom, the countries that were not the ones whose financial systems had leveraged as much as they had. Why is it that people thought that it was these surplus countries, the high savings countries, the Chinas, the Japans, the Singapores, and indeed the Germanys of the global economy? Why did people think that it was these economies that were going to suffer the most? Well, harking back a year ago, the best predictions that we had were that looking forwards, we were going to see declines of industrial production on the order of 15%. We're going to see world stock markets plunge by 50%. We're going to see world trade collapse by 20%. This collapse in world trade is even more remarkable because for most of the post-war era, unlike all these other variables, world trade has simply continued to rise, come what may. One of the massive successes of the global economy is that world trade has been growing as much as, as it has for the last 50 years. So the fact that a year ago, with the collapse of Lehman Brothers, we were looking into an abyss where world trade would actually not just slow down but fall by 20% was viewed by many to be disastrous. And embedded in these predictions for, the, for world trade was also the reasoning that suggested why those countries that seem to have been doing the right thing, not allowed their financial markets to run to excess, not leverage, not allow their consumers to leverage and run into debt, the countries that have been saving, you know, embedded in this observation was also reasoning that said that the world would partition into deficit countries and surplus countries, the countries, the deficit countries like the United States and the United Kingdom, who had been borrowing from the rest of the world to finance a financial binge and a binge of consumption, actually the deficit countries were going to come out relatively well off in this financial crisis, and the surplus countries, the countries that had been fueling this consumption binge in this reasoning, but that from another perspective had been just doing the right thing, saving for the future, putting their money so that they would earn high rates of return. It was these surplus countries, the ones that had been trying to follow the high moral path, if you like, that would end up suffering. So the way the world looked a year ago was that we were looking forward into an abyss of declined, sharply declining industrial production, this decline in industrial production would have uh, multiplier effects on world trade, and these multiplier effects on world trade would divide the global economy into deficit countries and surplus countries, because surplus countries that have been relying on exports as an engine of growth would see their export markets dry up. And since that, in this reasoning, was the engine of growth for these high-saving, export-driven economies, they were the ones who were going to suffer. So what were the facts? following these predictions a year or now. Well, the facts look pretty dismal. If you look at the facts as documented, say, by Eichen, Green, and O'Rourke, two economic historians, they compared what was happening in the few months following Lehman Brothers' collapse to what happened in the global economy 70 years ago during the Great Depression. So the lines that they traced out, the blue line shows, obviously, what happened 70 years ago, the workings out of the Great Depression, and the red line, the the dash line that's slowly inching forwards as we evolve in real time, 
That shows what happens in, what's happening in the global economy now in the months that followed the 2008 Lehman Brothers collapse. And the first thing that we pick up is that world industrial output was falling pretty much the way that world industrial output fell during the Great Depression. It looked like we had learned nothing about macroeconomic management, about recovering from collapse in the global economy uh, for the last 70 years, despite everything that Ben Bernanke and other central bankers and fiscal stimuli were throwing at the global economy. It seemed like all that we were doing was mimicking what happened 70 years ago. And when, we look at the world, and when we look at world stock markets, the prognosis seemed even more dire because world stock markets had collapsed even more dramatically than they did 70 years ago during the, the great stock market crash and the Great Depression. And sure enough, world trade collapsing was doing so faster than what happened 70 years ago. So all looked set for the dire predictions to materialize all looked set for how the world was going to polarize into deficit countries and surplus countries and rough justice or call it what you will, those countries that had been saving a lot, that in this interpretation had been fueling the financial binge elsewhere in the world, fueling the consumption binge elsewhere in the world, were going to suffer from this collapse in world trade. But then, from about the middle of this year, something surprising happened. Now, when we were in the green room, Nick accused me of potentially giving the same lecture this year as I did last year. I'm hoping I've managed to put in enough slides to put to rest that suspicion because here's some evidence from what's happened in the last six months. So this is reproduces a graphic from the Economist newspaper that show that compares industrial production across the large deficit country, the United States, and the Asian thrift surplus countries, emerging Asia. So this graph shows how industrial production in the United States, this light green line, has indeed been lying low, collapsed since the Lehman Brothers breakup, since the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy, and sure enough, the rest of Asia, all of emerging Asia, mimicked that collapse. In fact, if you pack out the numbers, it looks like an even sharper collapse. But then from June, something surprising happened. Emerging Asia started to pick up. China picked up first of all, but then so did the rest of emerging Asia, while the United States engine of growth for the global economy now did not seem to be driving this pickup. The surplus countries, sure enough, did suffer for the first six months of 2009, but industrial production was picking up again, and they were doing so independently of what was happening to U.S. industrial production, what was happening to U.S. balance sheet, and so what was happening to the U.S. consumer. The view that the surplus countries were going to suffer from a collapse in world trade, that it was the U.S. consumer who had to be restored to central place in the global economy before the global economy could hope to recover, did not seem to be borne out now. And then two months later, this picture diverged even further. Emerging Asia continued on its upward trend, while the United States' industrial production continued to languish. Okay. This, it turns out, has happened before. Okay. One of the 
nice things about the work of Icon Green and O'Rourke and others is that they've made us, all of us, go back and look at what's happened in economic history, in just historical experience. Um, Ken Rogoff and Carmen Reinhardt have completed a massive monograph studying international financial crises, and they warn us that however much we think the world has changed so that we think this time it's different, actually, over and over again, the global economy seems to repeat episodes from the past. So here is a first lesson that begins to run against the grain of conventional wisdom from the past. For me and for maybe a number of other people in the audience, the last significant international financial crisis crisis that we lived through or that we got to observe was the Asian currency crisis. It happened 10 years ago. And when it happened 10 years and when the Asian financial crisis hit on the 2nd of July 1997 and the Thai currency came under speculative attack, followed very quickly by all the other Asian currencies, many of the people living in that part of the world thought that well, thought the same thing as the rest of us here thought was happening to the global economy. Millions of people were going to be thrown into unemployment. Currencies collapsed by up to 50% against the U.S. dollar. Stock markets fell by over 70%. Trade volume and industrial production and growth went negative. That was a concentrated international financial crisis in East Asia. And its implications in terms of its impact on East Asia should, if anything, have been more magnified because, after all, there was a financial crisis that both began there and was concentrated there. Well, let's go back 10 years and look forwards and ask what happened after 1997. So here's a simple exercise. Suppose that we were sitting just before the Asian currency crisis occurred in 1996, and we were looking at the performance of the global economy and of the East Asian economies running up until then. And then we see this large shock hit East Asia. Let's ask what we think happened. Well, the Asian currency crisis precipitated a number of other international financial crises in Mexico, in Latin America, in Russia, in Brazil, and the entire world saw a setback in economic performance. Here is the crunch of that setback. The line that's drawn for you here reproduces world GDP running up until 1996, and then naively extrapolating the trend, making, you know, b making the false belief that the Asian currency crisis did not hit. What we would realize is that the reality is the world economy underperformed relative to trend. The international currency, the international financial crisis initially beginning in East Asia did sweep to the rest of the world and the world underperformed relative to trend and underperformed relative to trend by about 110% accumulated over these last 10 years. What happened in East Asia where after all the financial crisis was concentrated? Well here is what happened in East Asia. East Asia did see a sharp decline in overall GDP, but then, notwithstanding the far higher underlying trend growth rate that we would have been extrapolating up until 1996, East Asia recovered and recovered quickly. So much so that 
10 years after, up until just before the, the global 2008 financial crisis, it looked like East Asia had actually caught back up the trend. And the accumulated decline relative to trend was less than half that of the global economy. Lesson that I think we can take from this is that even when an international currency crisis is constant, has turned out to be concentrated in East Asia, somehow that region has enough built-in resilience to recover, and it recovered quickly and recovered far better than the rest of the world. Well, actually, I'm lying a little, because it turns out that it wasn't all of East Asia that recovered. If you take China out of that equation, we see that East Asia did suffer permanent and persistent ravages from the 1997 Asian currency crisis. And it was actually China that allowed the ongoing successful economic growth of that part of the world in a way that even the rest of the world was not able to emulate. So here we're looking at a historical episode where the currency or financial crisis that hit that part of the world was even more concentrated. And yet, even then, China had already shown the resilience in being able to sail through this concentrated crisis. Okay. What about the current conjecture, conjuncture? Why has China or the rest of East Asia recovered so quickly? Well, there are a number of conjectures out there now they turn on two things. First is that East Asia, and China in particular, has been able to put together a fiscal and monetary stimulus package that was far larger in proportion to GDP in China and East Asia than the rest of the world has been able to do. So, of course, for the usual Keynesian aggregate demand management reasons, for simply government policy driving along economic performance, of course it is no puzzle that East Asia and China have been able to do as well as they have in the last few months. A second factor that's been offered for explaining why this turnaround occurred, even though at first many economists did not expect it, was that there has also been a turnaround in world trade. And indeed, if you look at the most recent world trade statistics, they have indeed turned around. So the fact that China and East Asia have started to recover is, from this perspective, actually no surprise. It's simply that the rest of the world has kindly stepped in and ramped up world trade. These are two reasons, two possible reasons, possible scenarios, explanations for why in the current scenario, China and East Asia has been able to recover as quickly as they have. I have some problems with these explanations. So I want to tell you about the misgivings I have on them, and then I want to suggest an alternative that is uh, that seeks to go to a longer, more enduring, more fundamental reasoning. The first is the rest of the world has also been in the act of putting together expansionary financial and monetary stimulus packages. Yes, the rest of the world has, as a proportion of GDP, not been as large as those in China and the rest of East Asia. But the rest of the world has seen very little payoff from the fiscal and monetary stimuli that they have actually put together. And the rest of the world can't have been 
as abstemious as they might claim to be, given that in this country and elsewhere, we are already worrying about exploding levels of public debt. If indeed the monetary and fiscal expansionary packages that in the UK and elsewhere in the world have been so much significantly smaller than that in China and East Asia, China and East Asia should be worrying about their exploding public debt. But they're not. And they're seeing increased tax revenues from increased growth in economic performance. It is the rest of the world that has gotten into greater potential trouble. I can't think I don't think that fiscal and monetary stimulate packages alone can explain this disparity in economic performance. Turn now to the turnaround in world trade. The simple question is if there is an expansion in world trade, who has been behind it? Certainly not the US economy not the U.S. consumer and U.S. businesses who are busy attempting to repair their broken-down balance sheets. If there is an increase in world trade, and sure enough, the statistics do show that, it's got to be coming from somewhere else other than the deficit countries, other than the usual sources. So probably these two potential explanations either aren't right or they don't carry the entire story. So that takes me now to the remaining part of this lecture, and this is indeed the theme that I was trying, that I've been developing for a while and that Nick was referring to in his introduction, is the theme that says that the world's, the distribution of global economic activity is shifting, and it's shifting in a direction that says we're gonna see continued greater strength from the surplus countries in the East and elsewhere, and that we should not be surprised that the resilience and the underlying fundamentals in East Asia, in China in particular, elsewhere in the world, in surplus countries, have come up and taken on the task of driving forwards the global economy that thinking about the global economy having to recover from the West or from the United States or countries on the deficit side of the equation, waiting for these countries to again shoulder the burden of driving forwards the global economy is a misplaced, um, is, is a misplaced confidence. And at this point, we need to look elsewhere for how the global economy has been recovering. So let me take this issue of the reliance of China and other countries in East Asia on the United States for trade. Now, this table packs way too many numbers to be helpful in a lecture like this one. I simply flash this up um, to show you that, to, to, to try and convince you that the wealth of evidence is in the direction of what I'm going to say here. This pulls out of that previous graph the two trends that I want us to be uh, focused on. These, this graph shows the evolution in time of the exposure of China in its exports to the United States 
and to the European Union. And it does this both in terms of the direct trade that where China exports directly to the United States or to the European Union and the indirect trade, indirect trade where countries might be countries in East Asia might be circulating iPods at different stages of production back and forth before they eventually end up in the United States. So let's call the latter indirect trade and total trade or total exports refers to the sum of direct and indirect exports. This shows the fraction of China's total exports that end up both directly and indirectly in the United States or the European Union. The blue line in each of these uh, pairs shows the situation in 1994 and the red bar shows the situation in 2006. So to unpack the message from this chart which was embedded in the previous table, looking at the first pair that helps us think about the exposure of China in its exports to the United States, first in 1994 and then in 2006 directly. It shows that directly, China exported 30% of its total exports to the United States in 1994, but by 2006, that had fallen by fully a third. China still exports a lot to the United States, but as a fraction of its total exports, that has actually fallen. Now, sometimes you will see discussions of this kind of dynamics where people present to you exports as a fraction of GDP, where then China's exports to the United States seems to have grown as a fraction of GDP. But of course, exports everywhere have grown as a fraction of GDP. Remember what I said, one of the successes of the global economy is that trade has increased as dramatically as it has. The right way to think about exposure of any single country to any other country is as a fraction of its total exports. So we see for direct exports, China exports less to the United States now than it did in 1994. That's true directly, and that's true summing both directly and indirectly. China exports less now to the European Union than it did 10 years ago, both directly and indirectly. World trade has exploded, but this view that Chinese economic growth is being driven by exports to a richer United States, a richer European Union, does not seem to be confirmed in the data. Yes, China exports a lot, and exports a lot more now than it used to, but it's exporting to everyone. The whole world is exporting a lot more than it used to, and the whole world is exporting a lot more to everybody else in the world. That is a good thing. Now, this pattern that I've just described for you holds true across the major Asian economies as well. The view that the the U.S. consumer had to shoulder the burden of driving forwards the global economy, that China or the East Asian economies in general cannot, is a view that might have held true in the mid-1980s. This chart shows that in the mid-1980s, 
Japan traded with the United States more than one-third of its total trade, far higher than it did with anybody else. But notice, Japan's trade with the United States has fallen pretty much monotonically since the mid-1980s, so that by 2004, Japan's trade with China actually actually exceeded Japan's trade with the United States. Same thing for South Korea. South Korea traded with the United States over one-third of its total trade in the mid-1980s. But by 2003-2004, South Korea's trade with China had overtaken that of South Korea's trade with the United States. So that now, South Korea trades double what it does with China than it does with the United States. This pattern is repeated throughout East and Southeast Asia. China trades more than double what it does with East and Southeast Asia than it does with either the European Union or the United States. Coming away from this last circle of evidence, this says that the view that the global economy has to be driven forwards by a robust U.S. economy, a robust U.S. consumer, and that the East Asian economies are export-driven and overly reliant on the United States, that view does not seem to accord well with the most recent facts. Yes, East Asia, China, Japan, South Korea are all still export-driven, export-intensive, export-led economies, but the direction of trade is not primarily with the United States. The direction of trade is everywhere, and particularly East Asia. That East Asia has performed well in this most recent economic downturn should, again, actually, not have been a surprise if we had been sufficiently diligent students of economic history. Already in previous downturns, it had been Asia China and in China and India in particular that have driven global economic growth. So this table shows for you what happened the last two times the US economy went into recession, 1991 and 2001. This table shows for you the ratio of absolute economic growth that occurred in Asia or China or China and India relative to the United States. The lesson that we take away from this is that in 1991, when the U.S. economy underwent a downturn, East and Southeast Asia added to the global economy growth 20 times what the U.S. economy does, what the U.S. economy did then. China alone contributed three times to the global economy, what the U.S. failed to do. China and India, a little more. These are ratios of absolute growth evaluated at market exchange rates. They are valued at what we might have thought of once as good Yankee dollars. They are not calculations in terms of purchasing power parity. They are calculations in terms of valuations that add to the global economy in denominations that can be used to purchase 
wide-body Boeing jumbo jet airplanes, Nokia cell phones, or Italian or French fashion design. This contribution to the global economy, to growth in the global economy, through the 1991 U.S. downturn, and again through the 2001 U.S. downturn, showed that that part of the world is able to contribute more to global economic growth than the U.S. economy does in a U.S. economic downturn. The picture that many of us had when we looked at the first set of conventional wisdoms of the global economy as being powered by the U.S. economy rather than by China or the rest of East Asia, again, seems to be not in accordance with the facts. Remember, also, think about what a remarkable achievement this is. Take, for instance, what happened in 2001, in the U.S. 2001 downturn. The U.S. economy in 2001 had the average citizen there 20 times richer than the average Chinese citizen. China remains a very poor country on a per capita level. Despite this, the economic growth that was being generated in a very poor country in the midst of a global economic downturn driven by the U.S. economy was strongly positive. Given this pattern of Chinese or Asian or Indian behavior in the face of U.S. economic downturns, we should not at all have been surprised that industrial production in Asia would have turned around faster than industrial production in the United States. Finally, before we leave this set of facts here, this resilience of the East Asian economies and China most strongly in the face of a U.S. economic downturn, this resilience or this power for the global economic engine is one that manifests even in normal times. If we look at the 2001-2007 period, a period of strong U.S. economic growth, even then, China, although its average citizen had per capita income only one-fifteenth that of the United States, China as an economy was already generating more than two-thirds the absolute economic growth that the U.S. economy was. The adding to the flow of value, goods and services being produced in the world, was even in normal times two-thirds due to just one country, far, far poorer than the United States. That country is China. All indications are that India... Let's not forget the other billion people economy while we're here talking about China shows signs that it will take up that kind of, of strong and powerful economic growth as well. Okay. Um, the many people have remarked on how in this course of this economic growth, China has lifted 627 million people out of extreme poverty in the course of the last 30 years. 627 million people is more than the rest of the world combined has been able to lift out of poverty. 627 million people being lifted out of poverty is double the United States population. These 627 million people in the course of a natural economic growth in China as trickle-down occurs will come into middle-class patterns of consumption. And when they hit that point, Chinese consumption will skyrocket. 
one of the reasons that there is a supposition that Chinese consumption is low, that Chinese savings rates are high, is because many of the people in China remain so poor. But as this 627 million people reach middle class income levels, that will change and consumption will naturally rise. It does not need any further inorganic boosting. Of course, it will help if there's an improved social safety net that allows people, even before they reach middle class income levels, to be more generous with their consumption. But that is something that will help only at the margin. The great force of Chinese consumption that's set to take place comes from poverty reduction, and that comes from economic growth. It is not, China has done this poverty reduction not in any kind of cheap, easy way. The observers who have remarked how, well, Chinese reduction of poverty is, of course, inevitable because here you've got a billion people economy starting at very low income levels. Where can they go but up? Well, India was in a very similar, has been in a very similar situation. It too has a billion people. It too has very low per capita income levels. But up until very recently, it's poverty reduction and therefore its capacity for generating middle class consumption growth has been far less successful than China's. Okay. Now, I'm developing this theme of how there is an ongoing shift in, well, the global center of economic gravity eastwards and that how we should view China in the global economic crisis in the global economic crisis and in the global economic recovery how we should view China as being part of this larger more widely dispersed trend let me give you one more piece of evidence i know i'm running out of time but let me give you one more piece of graphic evidence in this regard this is a picture that I stole off of NASA's website. NASA took photographs of Earth at night. And in looking at the distribution of lights that shine, that manifest in the night sky, you get a feel for what the distribution of global economic activity looks like. So although this graph might not be, this map might not be completely transparent unless you come right up and look at it. I hope it's clear even to people in the back that you can see the swath of brightness that is the United States. You see the eastern seaboard lit up, you see California, and you see somewhat diminished economic activity in the Midwest. If you go across the Atlantic Ocean, you can practically pick out London and the southeast even without having recourse to being able to see the coastal lines. You can see Brussels, you know, European Commission bureaucrats <laughs> working away in the night sky. And as you go further on, you can see Bangalore lit up as its services, outsource, PowerPoint presentations that management consultants in New York have offloaded to them to work on overnight. And as you keep casting your eye eastwards, you see Japan outlined even without being able to see its coastal, uh, even without being able to see its, its coast, coastal outline clearly. And you see the beginnings 
of industrial economic activity in on the coastal in, in the coastal on the eastern seaboard of China. But then you also see that happening in East and Southeast Asia. Now, you could then take this map and ask how it has changed over the last 30 years or how it's evolved over the last 30 years. If you were to do that, of course, you know, I can't test your patience in quite doing that, and the blur of lights becomes quite uh, incomprehensible. So I did something a little bit different. I went to Google Earth, and I found the 700 places on the planet that look most likely to have measurable economic activity. So on Google Earth, I was able to go into Tashkent, Uzbekistan. I was able to look at the hive of business activity that is Kazakhstan. I looked at over 70 places in the United States, over 100 places in China, 66 places in India. I looked at Fiji and Guam on this side of the international dateline and Kiribati and French Polynesia on the other side of the international dateline. I collected 700 points where economic activity could potentially occur and then I graphed them on a three-dimensional earth. And then I'm presenting them to you now by computing the center, the economic center of gravity. Think about the wireframe that is a three-dimensional globe with 700 points laid out, identified by Google Earth, where activity can occur. And then calculate the center of gravity where you use the weights that is levels of economic activity rather than mass. And you can then ask the question that you know, people might not, have, might not have a reasonable conjecture, what's happening to that center of gravity? Now, for those of you who are slightly more technical in the audience, you realize what I'm doing is I'm simply trying to capture a complicated, evolving spatial distribution in one sufficient statistic. It's weight, it's mean, it's, it's average. So this picture shows the projection of that world economic center of gravity onto a flat two-dimensional world. It's not exactly the 700-point picture. This picture comes from an earlier version of that same calculation. There's still some things I'm cleaning up with the, um, the Channel Islands don't seem to be doing the right thing in that 700-point graph. But most of the globe's economic activity is captured here. So what this picture does, let me point out some things about this picture. This is a picture of a two-dimensional flat map of the world. It shows London on the zero meridian and about the 50th degree latitude. It shows Moscow to the east of London. Way to the east, you see Beijing and Shanghai. You see Delhi, somewhere in between. If you cast your eyes south, you see Cape Town. If you traverse the South Pacific Ocean, you come to Rio de Janeiro. If you look north, there's New York, Washington, D.C., and San Francisco. Now, distances are distorted when you project a three-dimensional world onto a two-dimensional map, and other things change in a peculiar way. Let's try and abstract away from those peculiarities and acknowledge that what this picture shows in the evolving red dots, which is the world economic center of gravity, is that in 1976, the world's economic center of gravity, as you might expect, was roughly mid-Atlantic. The swath of bright lights on the North American continent, counterbalanced by what was happening in Western Europe, placed the world's economic center of gravity 
somewhere to the west of London. This picture then shows what happened in three-year periods after the mid-1970s. In every three-year period since, the World Economic Center of Gravity has shifted eastwards. Actually, in totality, over the last 30 years, the World's Economic Center of Gravity has drilled 1,800 kilometers, almost one-third of the Earth's radius, eastwards and into the core of the Earth, away from where it used to be, away from the United States, from centers of production, the United States and Western Europe. Now, all of this is consistent with an observation that many people have made. The U.S. economy has for the last 40 years remained 25% of the global economy. All of that is still true. But nonetheless, the world's center of gravity has shifted. The distribution of global economic activity has shifted eastwards considerably. And each time the U.S. economy has gone into recession, that center of gravity never quite recovers west it keeps piling eastwards faster and faster, and the acceleration occurs every time there's a U.S. economic downturn. Okay, so I've presented to you now the evidence on why I think that in the course of this global economic crisis, we should not have been surprised at the rapid recovery of the surplus countries like China not the only surplus country, and why we should not be surprised that you know, why we should why we should try and contextualize this global economic crisis in a picture of a longer term, more profound trend of a shift of global economic activity eastwards. Those undergraduates who were moving to China and not yet having picked up Chinese might have cottoned on to a lot more of this shifting distribution than they actually told the New York Times journalists. There's a profound shift underway. This profound shift is not going to occur over the rest of the next 50 years painlessly and smoothly. Part of what we've seen in the global financial crisis, I would argue, is a manifestation of the global imbalances that have emerged from this ongoing shift in the distribution of global economic activity. Now, I'm, if I may have just four minutes, um, I want to argue that this pattern of global imbalances is real and important and large, but its interpretation and its solution might not be that that most people, that might not be that as described in conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom has it let me repeat, that the Asian economies, China in particular, have saved too much. They've run large current account and large trade balance surpluses. They've then reinvested this accumulation of capital assets in the West. And it is this infusion of cheap capital that has driven the global financial crisis. If that view is correct, then what we need to do is to rebalance the global economy so that this doesn't happen again number of ways you can think about doing that. You could say the West or the current deficit countries have to save a lot more than they've traditionally done. Or you could say that the Asian economies, the Asian thrift economies, the culprits that have been identified in popular discussion for this global financial crisis, those countries need to be convinced 
that they should not continue to run large trade surpluses. They should consume more. They should not rely on the Western consumer as their engine of growth. A number of issues I want to explore with that view. First, I want to argue that the view that it was Asian thrift that drove a global savings glut is, again, not in accordance with the facts. The facts suggest a slightly more complicated picture, and the facts do not sit comfortably with the view that it was Asian thrift or that it was China that drove these flows of cheap capital. If that's the case, then the simple solution, one of simply saying that China needs to boost its consumption, that will restore global balance, that can't be the right solution either. So let's walk through this. I don't have... I don't think anyone at this point has all the answers to this, but I would like to use the remaining couple of minutes to throw some doubt into that conventional wisdom. Okay. This conventional wisdom, incidentally, is one that we see rehearsed in and, and taken almost as an article of faith in many uh, pronouncements by the U.S. political establishment and indeed by many academics that I respect and admire uh, globally. And, and academics, not just economists, but historians like Neil Ferguson and others who have done sterling work in unpacking a lot of what's going on, but here I think they have simply missed the point. Okay. So how does that conventional story go? Well, here is a picture of the U.S. trade deficit. The U.S. trade deficit is the blue line that's charted here over the 1980 through the 2006 era. For going back past 1980, as was the case for most of the 1980s, the U.S. economy ran a trade account that was roughly in balance. U.S. at that time was still the world's largest creditor. And then something happened in the early 1990s where the U.S. trade deficit suddenly skyrocketed. U.S. consumers started consuming a lot more than the U.S. economy was producing. This got to a point where in 2006, the U.S. trade deficit exceeded 800 billion U.S. dollars. Now, as a fraction of U.S. GDP, that's between 6 and 7% of U.S. GDP, so you might not think that's that significant. On the other hand, 7% of GDP was exactly the current account deficit that Thailand was running on the 1st of July 1997, just before for, you know, foreign exchange uh, traders decided that the Thai baht was thereafter unsustainable and engaged in an attack on the Thai baht. No one was engaged in a similar attack on the U.S. currency, but in terms of these crude macroeconomic numbers, the U.S. economy was basically a Thailand in 2006. It wasn't just a Thailand, the U.S. trade deficit was more than an India. So the other line that's charted here, the red line, shows Indian GDP. And it shows you how, by 2006, the U.S. consumer was eating one India more than the economy was producing. India is a billion people economy, was generating national income less than what the United States was borrowing from the rest of the world. How did this come about? Well, many observers have pointed this out, and then they point to 
how actually this came about because of excess savings elsewhere in the world. Excess savings in the form of cheap capital that then flooded the U.S. economy. And thank goodness the U.S. consumer stepped up to bat to consume more than they were producing because otherwise all of this cheap capital would have resulted in a global recession right away. And many, uh, many historians and many economists have pointed out how, how if you look at China's bilateral trade balance against the United States, it almost exactly mimics it seemed to drive the U.S. overall trade balance. So right here, in the view of some, is the smoking gun for why China drove global imbalances and therefore indirectly brought about the global financial crisis. What could be wrong with this argument? If you read economic hist- a number of economic historians and others, they have traced how at each step of the way, Chinese overproduction <coughs> Drove U.S. overconsumption. That's the simple story. Okay, so what's wrong with this? Well, look around at the rest of the world. Look in particular, or just randomly, look at oil exporters and the European Union. And we realize that the U.S. economy was also running large trade deficits against the European Union and against the oil exporting countries. So much so that if you add up the trade deficits for those two blocks, in the violet line, you see that actually they almost exactly match the U.S. bilateral trade deficit against China. Now, if there was Asian thrift driving U.S. overconsumption, then there was also European Union thrift and oil exporting thrift similarly driving U.S. consumption. And indeed, it actually makes no sense to talk about excess savings in one part of the world driving excess consumption in another part of the world because those two quantities always have to equal each other. However, if you look at the ratio of trade balances that the U.S. economy was running against the rest of the world, actually, there was no one part of the world that the U.S. was running up significant trade deficits against compared to the U.S., compared to trade deficits, it was running up against all other countries. If you did have to have a simple monocausal view of global imbalances, I think that the evidence points to the U.S. economy as driving the pattern of global imbalances rather than Asian thrift or Chinese excess savings. I'm not the only one who says this, of course, because Stephen Roach and Morgan Stanley uh, recently in an interview with the Council on Foreign Relations uh, in a departure from many other American uh, observers and economists pointed out that the U.S. does not have a bilateral trade problem with China. The U.S. is running trade deficits against well, pretty much everybody else in the rest of the world. China just happens to be caught in the target site at this point. And if the United States diverted its trade deficit away from China by, say, punitive tariffs, then U.S. overconsumption would simply spiral over into yet other countries to the disadvantage of the U.S. consumer because these other countries would typically be producing at prices higher than that in China. Okay, so this brings us to the conclusion of the talk. I've taken us over a view of what's happened with China and East Asia in the global financial crisis. I've told you about the upturn, and I've told you, I've given you some historical evidence that suggests we should not have been as surprised as many of us might seem to have been. 
And then I've told you about how there are structural reasons why this happened, that the the, that, we, that simply thinking of what's happening in China and East Asia as simply a stopgap emergency action and that this will go away is actually at odds with the facts on a deeper, more profound, more enduring underlying fundamental shift of global economic activity eastwards. Okay, and then I've told you about how this eastward shift gives us a different interpretation on the pattern of global imbalances than one might at first think. Okay. What do we do going forwards? Well, I don't know. But we do have a problem. We do have a problem that the United States remains the world's reserve currency. And while long-term trends indicates that, given the evidence that we've discussed, it has to fall in value, not just against the Chinese renminbi, but against all the other world currencies to make the U.S. consumer rein in excess consumption, to make that economy be more sensible about how it leverages assets, that's not happening now. The U.S. dollar, because it remains the world's reserve currency, is also a safe haven. And every time there is bad news in the global economy, investors rush into the U.S. dollar, driving up its value, worsening the pattern of global imbalances. This problem is not going to go away. The last time that a country gave up status as world reserve currency was when world leadership, world economic leadership shifted from the United Kingdom to the United States. The United States had become a richer economy than the United Kingdom by 1872. And yet by 1899, the U.S. dollar was still less than 6% of global financial foreign exchange holdings and less than 6% of foreign uh, of international transactions. Even by 1913, the pound sterling, together with the French franc and the German mark, together accounted for over 90% of the world's financial transactions and 90% of the world's foreign exchange reserves. World reserve currencies have a great stickiness to them. And that even as the shift of economic activity goes further eastwards, and even if, as Goldman Sachs predicts, there's a chance that by 2050 the U.S. Econ- the US economy will be overtaken by the Chinese economy, history tells us that this status of the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency could potentially remain for as long as 40 to 90 years after that. And if that's the case then this problem of the global economy being unable to adjust to this shift of global economic activity is going to endure. And um, we are quite likely to see manifestations of global imbalances along the same lines that we've seen in the last 18 months. Thank you. Um, that was absolutely stunning um, and I think one of the things I'd just like to say very briefly um, is what Danny manages to do I mean I'm a linguist and I studied humanities so German and French and when I, when I hear about economists obviously I'm directly affected and I'm interested but what you do so well 
is that you create a story out of it where I really want to hear what the next chapter is. And in many ways, you are the supreme cliffhanger artist, you know, and um, if only you could do this every week, um, I think it should be televised. It's amazing. And it's true. (coughs) Um, I'm in the business of of languages, and our centre of gravity has shifted as well towards China. Um, Germany, German, going smaller, Italian disappearing Um, you have the French no offence to Italy by the way Um, um, France there still as this diplomatic hangover sort of reserve currency if you like in languages and so you have Chinese, Mandarin um, English, Spanish and Arabic, it's all very very interesting (coughs) anyway the story has been told, the cliffhanger, we have questions from the audience. Can I ask you to speak very, very clearly? The acoustics from you to us are quite poor, so in order for the an- questions to be heard and the answers to be given, clarity would be much appreciated. So, first questions, please. Thank you. Let's say um, by 2050, China have overtaken the U.S. Um, as in terms of GDP power. Um, but the U.S. is still, as you said, a sticky reserve currency, and they still maintain that power over the currency. How would that affect relations, and would that still give the U.S. the dominant power over China? Okay, shall I get one more question? Three or four. Okay, another question at the front. Yeah. Um, you show that the um, sterling remained the dominant currency for many, many decades, even after the U.S. <coughs> overtook uh, the U.K. in terms of GDP. What was the um, trade imbalance like for Britain during that period? Thank you. A couple more questions. I'm looking up. Well, question here. Okay, lovely. And okay, so. Um, that lady, that gentleman there, and we'll come back to you in a second. Um, I wonder if it's, is it possible that we'd see uh, a bundle of uh, currencies, the, maybe the euro, the yen, the RMB, and the U.S. dollar? I heard a speech in Washington from the IMF about the special drawing rights and uh, wondered what you thought about that. Okay. Pass the microphone in front there. Okay. Thank you, Danny. Uh, brilliant. Uh, you're not only the first-class economist, but also first-class economic historian. So um, you have done it. Um, you don't, don't let my department colleagues. Uh, no, okay. So, yeah. <laughs> sure. um, this is a comment. Um, the, in the economics language, uh, language, we're talking about general equilibrium. So we're thinking of you know, kind of um, synchronizing the whole world uh, creating a, a, you know, as if you like, a, a synergy from all parts of the world for something greater. However, what you have told us is this: there's a counter-cyclical force in the world, so imbalance uh, growth may be a way out, because if one part of the world is going down. The other part may pick it up. In fact, um, Britain used to play that game 
before Bretton Woods. It's called a countercyclical investment. So now China is doing what China is doing is a countercyclical production and consumption. So better for the world. Thank you. Thanks, Ken. We'll keep this person there. Is that you? And then we're going to. Yeah, let me. Yeah. If I can um, take a, um, I'll, I'll try and speak to all the points. Uh, thank you for all the interesting points. If I don't, don't get to everything that, or if I misinterpret what you've asked more generally, uh, you can please buttonhole me after the, the talk or, you know, I apologize ahead of time. The, how, would, how will it affect international relations if by 2050 China does overtake the United States as a world economic power? But the U.S. dollar remains the world's reserve currency. Well, you know, the overtaking of, you know, the overtaking by GDP of one country by another is on the one hand very real, but it's on the other hand relatively symbolic. There's no drastic change when a country is just one penny below the leading country to when it is one penny above the leading country. No world leadership, there's a cluster of, of economies that are world leaders, and it is that cluster that whose behavior will determine the global economy. So how would it affect international relations if the U.S. dollar remains the world's reserve currency? My guess is it probably, you know, at that point, it wouldn't affect international relations more negatively than it already does so now. Remember, when you know, China is a country that is about three to four times the population of the United States. That means that when Chinese GDP catches up with U.S. GDP, its average citizen will have a per capita income, will have an income that's only 25% that of the United States. The U.S. will still be a far richer economy in per capita terms. Uh, so China will take its place, as it's already doing, I hope, in, you know, in global leadership, but there will be no dramatic changes. Let me tie this discussion about uh, the world's reserve currency and which is the world's which world leadership with a third question, which is uh, which has to do with a bundle of currencies like special drawing rights issued by the IMF as a possible world reserve currency. The status of world reserve currency is not something that's awarded. There's no like Nobel Prize committee out there that says, okay, well this year. We're going to name as the world's reserve currency the Indonesian rupiah. It doesn't do that. The world's reserve currency is what emerges naturally when international financial institutions decide to hold more of one currency than another. So for that to happen, international financial institutions have to have a view about the financial depth of the economy that that currency is, you know, is the currency issued by. It has to have a view about the inflationary tendencies of the central bank there. It has to have a view about the stability of the economic performance, its ability to sustain current account deficits or indeed current account surpluses. So all of these things enter a calculation for what the world's reserve currency is endogenously determined to be through the uncoordinated actions of international financial institutions. Having said all of that, however, it benefits one country tremendously when it gets to issue the world's reserve currency. This is far better than actually, you know, having your capital city win this, become the site for the next Summer Olympics. When your economy turns out to be the world's reserve currency, your economy gets to shift risk 
from your consumers to the rest of the world. World transactions, world international transactions get denominated in your currency. Your people know exactly how much they're going to spend on what component of their consumption bundle. The rest of the world has to bear the risk of price fluctuations. Your economy gets to collect taxes when your central bank issues currency through this process of an inflation tax or scenerage. Your country gets to have a deep field against which to borrow internationally. And you realize that the U.S. economy has exercised to an extreme all of these benefits of the U.S. dollar remain being the world's reserve currency. Those benefits are not going to be given up lightly. On the question of what happened you know, a century ago with the United Kingdom and the United States, remember that even among these two, the most friendly of countries, countries divided by, if anything, only a common language, it still took endogenously close to 100 years before leadership in the world's reserve currency actually got handed over. So if any, I think, if anything, we're in for an even longer slog at this point. Will an a national, a, a currency, like a special drawing right, that does not belong to any single country, become a world's reserve currency? I think it's a theoretical possibility, but I don't think at this point, um, I, I don't think at this point the factors are in place to make that a more realistic proposition than Right now, the world's number two currency, the euro, becoming the world's reserve currency. If you look at the numbers, the fraction of world reserves held at international financial institutions that are denominated in euros, number of international transactions that are undertaken that are denominated in euros, are f- a tiny, tiny fraction of the same quantities denominated in U.S. dollar. It's a very remote possibility still at this point. Um, I, I don't know, actually, the, the facts on the UK trade position. That's a very interesting question. I don't know if, if Kent does off the top of his head. Maybe I can get him to speak on that. But before I do, I, I, I pick up uh, Kent's question on, is, uh, global Im- is the current global imbalance uh, a good thing in that it helps stabilize the world? I think that um, w- both Kent and I are thinking along the same lines, that the current global economic crisis is an outcome of this ongoing shift of global economic activity. But my view is more like it's more like a fault line with earthquake tendencies and that you see these geodesic plates shifting but they're not really a lot but but the way the earth behaves it doesn't really allow a smooth gradual shift in this economic activity but instead the pressure builds up. And then when that pressure cracks, when the fault line actually engages and releases that tension, that's my model of a global economic crisis. So I think that, yes, it is something that's necessary to release the the tension that's been built up, but I don't think of it as necessarily a a good thing. And I think China and actually the United States might well come out of both both of them are kind of the global economic crisis with healthier economies, the U.S. being far less reliant on excessive leveraging on both its, its consumers and its businesses, and China having learned the lesson of building a, a, a more secure social safety net for the most insecure of its citizens. That's got to be a good thing, regardless of whether we have a global economic crisis.
Thank you. Um, we'll have a couple more questions. Um, I know we've got the gentleman there. We'll begin with you. Hi, uh, Professor, uh, Professor Kua. Thank you very much for the lecture. And my question is, uh, if the Chinese government doesn't invest its large summer surplus into U.S. Treasury bonds, where else would it invest into, given that uh, the United States is probably the least likely country def to default on his debts? Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Gentleman here and gentleman there. Just wait for the microphone to come round. On there. China's uh, uh, communist uh, uh, the, the, the party of the Central Committee has uh, a uh, economic task force in the next uh, month for discussion about the avoiding the inflation. And uh, in terms of uh, the monetary policy and the fiscal policy comes from the Chinese government uh, to pour a lot of uh, uh, stimulus package on this market, then I'm wondering uh, how the inflation will come in soon or uh, like a half year or one year. What, what do you think? And the second thing is uh, whether the China will export uh, this kind of uh, inflation to the East Asia or some, somewhere else in the world. Thank you. Okay, one more question there. We know we've got two questions from the top floor, which I'd like to get in if possible. Yeah? Yes, my, my question is more parochial about the UK. Gordon Brown is claiming that he's saving the world uh, economy, so I want to hear your views on that. And second <laughs> is uh, what your views are in regards to why the UK economy is still in recession when everybody else is out. Do you want to do the three first and then do the Yeah, I'll, I'll, do, I'll do these three as, as best I can. I mean, these are, these are, of course, all the right questions, but also very tough questions, and I can do, you know, not very much more than speculate on, on some of this. Um, so if I can pick up, is Gordon Brown saving the world? Well, um, <laughs> I think that most people don't seem to think so. Um, I, I hope, well, I hope, I hope he does save the world. I hope someone saves the world. But whether it will be Gordon Brown, that's not so evident. Um, the, what's going to happen to inflation? I, um, I, that's okay. Well, before I leave the UK, you know, why is the UK in not as good shape as the the other economies? Um, I think a number of factors. One is that. We had over-relied on financial services as a growth industry. While, while capacity for growth remains strong in financial services, I think uh, not just for structural reasons within the industry itself, but simply because all of the global economy is, is re-examining financial services, is having second thoughts about the kind of financial services industries the world needs. I think there's a natural slowdown of what's happening in the UK for that reason alone. And second, that, 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 um, that risk aversion is also manifesting in all other kinds of actions. Investment in real activity does not seem to be picking up as well. Even when the government guarantees different kinds of credit lines, people don't seem to be picking up on those. There's much less of a there's much less of an ongoing private private sector momentum 
that I think we need on top of all the fiscal and monetary stimulus, which the, the UK authorities have already thrown in. So I think that's a, that's a hugely important problem. I don't know that that's a good solution. The, I, I'm going to quickly, for reasons of time, I'm going to have to quickly skip over the in, inflation question because really I, I, I just don't know. I don't know what's going to happen to inflation in China, and I don't know if it's going to export it to the rest of East Asia. That, uh, things are delicately balanced at that point. Let me pick up now on, on the first question. is If the Chinese government does not invest in U.S. Treasuries, what should it do? After all, U.S. Treasuries seem to have a lot to, to offer. So let's rehearse the facts on those. The Chinese Banking Regulatory Commission says that they have they hold about two trillion U.S. dollars worth of foreign exchange reserves. The U.S. U.S. official figures uh, published by U.S. Treasury and available on your nearest website um, show that China Chinese government and official financial institutions hold about between eight to nine hundred billion dollars of their foreign exchange in U.S. Treasuries alone. So in U.S. government-issued paper. So this is what you're referring to. If the Chinese government does not invest in U.S. Treasuries, what should you do? So first we notice that actually $1.2 trillion is, is not invested in U.S. Treasuries. It's invested elsewhere. Uh, that's why it's not just invested in Citibank, but it's invested elsewhere in the global economy. Should the, U, should the Chinese government continue to hold as much U.S. Treasuries as it does? Well, let's, let's unpack that. The U.S. government is very unlikely to default, at least openly, but there are many ways to default. You can default by, by having your currency depreciate against a domestic currency. You can implicitly default by running high levels of inflation, therefore inflating away the real value of the debt that you hold. So the conundrum now is that China sits on... $800 billion of U.S. Treasuries, and if the U.S. dollar falls by 20%, that's 20% of $800 billion that the Chinese government has to explain to the citizens how they seem to have misplaced. It's been lost through a U.S. decline, the decline of the, the U.S. dollar. So that the U.S. government is unlikely to default openly, leaves open the possibility that the U.S. government can default on its treasury in other ways. Incidentally, just out of interest, let me point out that at this point, China, you know, these official numbers from the U.S. Treasury do indicate that China is the world's largest holder of debt issued by the U.S. government. The number two largest holder turns out to be Japan. That's no surprise. But the surprising number three turns out to be the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom is the world's third largest holder of U.S. treasuries. And you might wonder why a, an economy with public finances that's in tatters the way it is has seen fit to invest as much as it has in U.S. treasuries. Oh, but that's a problem that's leave for the U.K. government financial institutions to resolve. Where else should the Chinese government uh, invest if not in U.S. Treasuries. Well, I happen to like Malaysia, <laughs> but um, I, I, I don't know. I'm being flippant. I don't know where I don't know where anyone should invest. Many other people in this room, I'm sure, have far more successful investment records than I do. Um, it, we're really coming to we're here. The questions, and it's up to Dan to, to decide if we have time to do it. 
Over here first, and then the, the lady in the corner. Um, my question is that um, I remember that in the 80s, um, we were all meant to become Japanese, um, many papers said, um, and that uh, nothing happened there, that Japan is very fragile and the economic record is poor in many, many ways. And I remember that the World Health Organization said that 20 years ago that China was top class uh, in, in medical uh, things. Um, nowadays, nobody would quote China anymore in a World Health Organization context at all. Isn't, don't you exaggerate tremendously what's happening now with China in the future? And the fear we should have is that China will become a Somalia? Okay. okay. <laughs> and finally... Hi, thanks very much. Um, I would like to know in your views how sustainable uh, you think is the China um, economic development because given um, China has achieved over 10% GDP growth over the past few years, can it still you know, drive the momentum? And also do you think if increasing the consumption and investment channels in China internally will give it Okay, let, let me pick up both of these questions because it turns out that although they've been asked from different parts of the room, they're actually, of course, related. First question has to do with, you know, uh, what seemed to be a similar scenario in the 1980s when it seemed like the rage or the fear was that the whole world was become Japanese, like you say. And I was living in the United States then, and you would see editorial after editorial of, you know, of Japan buying up Hollywood, Japan buying up Rockefeller Plaza, Japan was going to own all of the United States, and. No. So then we say, well, then we realize in the subsequent 20, 30 years, uh, people refer to the lost decade in the Japanese economy. So that also is, of course, the same question is, if we apply that to China, is China's growth going to slow? Well, yes, Japan has undergone a lost decade, if not more. Japan, Jap overall Japanese economic growth has been practically zero uh, ever since the 1990s. But let's not lose sight of the fact that Ch Japan remains a very rich economy. Even with 0% growth for the last 15, 20 years, it's still the world's number two economy. Right? Match that Germany, the United Kingdom, and anybody else. When you go to Tokyo, it is obviously a very well-functioning, rich society. You know, the view that because Japan has lost a decade of economic growth, it's become a dysfunctional society is, is just wrong. It's still a very rich economy. But that leads me also to why whether the Chinese economic growth is sustainable. Remember, when, chi when China overtakes the United States in overall GDP, it will still be a country that is very poor. Its people will still have a per capita income that relative to the United States is less than what the United Kingdom now has compared to the United States. Its people will still have a per capita income only one quarter that of the United States. It has a lot more capacity for economic growth. And the situation that the, the largest difference between China now and Japan then is that Japan then was already a rich economy. China now remains a poor economy and is rapidly becoming rich. Um, Danny, thanks again. It's been an amazing evening. Um, I know that I've, I've been very influenced. My, my, my tutor at Oxford, German tutor, said everything was about paradox and irony. And once you understand that, you understand a lot. And I think what you've brought out as well is the paradoxical nature of China as well, the poverty in the one hand, overcoming it, the richness it has, the GDP, the small, the influence, the relationship between all of it. And also, in, a, in an era where economics have grown, economists 
have grown, the study of economics, where you have the situation, how do you manage that paradox, and indeed the, the, the importance of economic history as well, which uh, <laughs> um, you have demonstrated as well. Uh, a huge round of applause, please, for Professor Daniel. <laughs>